Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. Good to see you again. And welcome to this week's Roundtable, where we look back at the big news of the week with the help of three of Washington's top political reporters. This was the week when both Donald Trump and Joe Biden were on the road to keep battleground states, as polls show Biden still in the lead, but Trump narrowing the gap. The week when two historic Middle East agreements were signed at the White House, when the president continued to deal with fallout from Bob Woodward's book, all captured on tape, of course, when in the face of COVID-19, Donald Trump ignored health precautions by holding indoor political rallies and promising a vaccine by November 3rd, and the week when nature took center stage with America burning up in the West and drowning in the East. Here to try to put all of this stuff in perspective, Nikki Schwab, senior U.S. political reporter for the Daily Mail. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Bill. And Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington editor for NBC News Digital. Ginger, welcome back. Glad to be here. And Niall Steinage joining us again, political reporter and White House columnist for The Hill. Hello, Niall. Hey, Bill. Okay, folks, I'd like to start with um, a rather bizarre exchange uh, that happened just a Wednesday evening um, between the president of the United States and the head of the Center for Disease Control. First of all, Robert Redfield, the CDC head, testified earlier in the day uh, in front of Congress about the value and the importance of wearing a mask. Here he is. I might even go so far as to say that this face mask is more guaranteed to protect me against COVID than when I take a COVID vaccine because the immunogenicity may be 70%. And if I don't get an immune response, the vaccine's not going to protect me. This face mask will. So there's one of America's top leading public health professionals saying this mask is so important, maybe even important, more important than the vaccine. President Trump is asked about that later in the afternoon at his, uh, if we still call them White House briefings, whatever they are, at the White House. He takes on Redfield. Here's that exchange. And here up on the podium today, you're twice contradicting the director of your own CDC on the science who testified before Congress today. No, he's contradicting himself. I think he misunderstood the question. Well, he was testifying. You know what I think? I think he misunderstood. I told you, I don't have to go through this. I think he misunderstood the questions, but I'm telling you, here's the bottom line. Distribution is going to be very rapid. He may not know that. Maybe he's not aware of that. And maybe he's not dealing with the military, etc., like I do. Distribution is going to be very rapid, and the vaccine is going to be very powerful. It's going to solve a tremendous problem. It's going to be very powerful. How do the American people trust you on the pandemic when you're contradicting the head of the CDC? And your because of the great job we've done. Because of the great things we've done in other fields also. 
So, Niall, what's the American, what are the American people to believe when the public health person says, wear your mask, and the president says he doesn't know what he's talking about? Well, I mean, I think I would believe the guy who's the actual scientist over the person who has a political motivation to make certain claims. But this is obviously uh, part of a general approach by the president where he has tended to dismiss or disdain scientific advice that doesn't accord with what he would like to see happen. Um, the second, the, the part uh, you played there of Trump was more him talking about the timing of vaccinations, as I understood it, than the actual use of face masks. And of course, there's very serious questions around whether the president is uh, making promises there or putting pressure on there to uh, have vaccines produced in some way uh, in alignment with an electoral calendar rather than a scientific one. And that's uh, a major issue and one that I know Joe Biden was also picking up on in recent days. But Ginger, doesn't this really do little more than sow confusion among the public? I think that that we are approaching just a real historic moment where um, there is so much confusion and disagreement uh, and, and politics has become so infused in this process. I think uh, I've been saying since March, we might have had the worst possible combination um, of situations for a pandemic. Uh, conservatives don't trust the government and liberals don't trust this government. Um, and, and so no one uh, is inclined to listen. I thought we saw uh, Joe Biden on Wednesday trying to perhaps you could say, uh, uh, put it in a situation where you could take it out of political hands as much as someone running for president who's inherently partisan can with his proposal to have uh, sort of a panel of scientists decide if the vaccine uh -huh. uh, was done. But um, I, we have just, as a culture, as a society, infused so much politics in this discussion right now. I, I'm not sure how, how we take it out. Yeah. And Nikki, the thing that I find raised questions uh, mostly to me in what uh, Donald Trump said yesterday afternoon was he talked about, well, Redfield may not be talking to the military like I am. I mean, what is he thinking about? What is he indicating? What role is the military going to have in rolling out the vaccine and vaccinating people? Yeah, it was that was pretty confusing. And, and you know, uh, one of the many baffling statements Donald Trump said at that press conference as well. Uh, but just another sort of point to make on top of that is that afterward, Redfield came out with a statement. And this is what, you know, his scientists have had to sort of do is, is sort of, you know, bow down to Trump a little bit in order to save their own jobs. And Redfield said, you know, hey, when I was talking to Congress, I was... Um, answering a question about the time period of when the COVID vaccination would be completed. So basically he was saying that, oh, second, third quarter, what I said to the Senate, I actually meant that's when everyone would already have their vaccine, not when it would begin to be available. So he had to sort of try to mince words in order to, to get in line with the president. And that is almost, you know, even more galling that then you have these scientists having to, uh, you know, put out these statements quickly so they save their job even though Trump did say during the press conference that he still had, quote, confidence in Dr. Redfield. Right. Yeah. And that's not the first time we've seen an example of a, of a uh, public health official uh, having to um, correct his statements, let's say, to, to uh, satisfy uh, the White House. Okay. By my count, uh, we panelists here, we are 47 days out 
from uh, November 3rd. That's the state of... So what do you see... You all three, some of you I know have been out to events, out to rallies, following the two candidates. What do you see the state of the race today, uh, given the fact that we all know it could easily change by tomorrow, certainly could change by November 3rd? Today, what do you see the state of the race? Niall, start us off. I think Joe Biden is in the lead pretty clearly. I think if the election were held today, he would be expected to win. But I don't think at all that President Trump is out of this. I don't think he's out of contention or a no-hooper by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I'm somewhat skeptical of the Trump campaign's argument about shy Trump voters, in other words, people who support the president but who aren't showing up in opinion polls. There's a whole discussion about that and about polling methodology. But, you know, one of the closest battleground states is clearly Florida, which is the largest battleground state. President Trump, in the real clear politics average, is within about one point of Biden there. If Trump were to win Florida, um, it wouldn't guarantee his re-election, but it would be a significant step toward it. And that's uh, very competitive. So if other uh, battleground states begin tightening, begin moving into a competitive uh, frame, then I think we're set for a close election, which is, to be fair, what many people were expecting from the outset. Uh, And Ginger, I'd love to know how you see it, but also particularly the Trump campaign. I mean, uh, Donald Trump has been sort of pushing two messages, one that Joe Biden is up. Uh, almost senile, sleepy Joe, you know, not ready to be president. And second, that if he were elected, uh, the United States would erupt in a, wa- ra- in a wave of violence in the inner cities and in the suburbs. It would be total chaos or carnage, to use his word. Uh, how do you view it now, and, and particularly the Trump campaign? So I, I think I, last time I was with you, Bill, I said that I thought... Uh, Donald Trump had hit his low water mark in July, and I think that's holding. Um, I think that it has gotten a bit tighter since then, uh, but the pace that Trump is is narrowing the gap does not indicate, as Niall said, that that he can he's sort of he's still behind and he's still got a long way to go. Uh, you point out two interesting things. These, you know, we've seen and 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 uh, my colleagues at NBC have done some great reporting on Trump's inability to sort of find an attack message that works against Joe Biden. And I think you point to two uh, great examples of that. Uh, The first uh, being this idea that that Joe Biden is senile or that he's he's incapable. And I think it falls down for two reasons. One, um, that anyone who's ever had a family member with Alzheimer's or dementia knows exactly what it looks like. And it knows that, that it's not Joe Biden. I have a grandfather with late sort of uh, late stage dementia. And, and it's quite clear that that's not uh, the condition mm-hmm. that Joe Biden is in. And second, um, that there's a lot of people out there who would rather a senile Joe Biden than uh, a, a Donald Trump in his current state. Um, I think that they just don't underestimate, they underestimate how many people are voting against Donald Trump and they don't really care about Joe Biden. And the second, this idea of crime and punishment, there was a great uh, poll out on Thursday morning from the Kaiser Foundation looking at the issues that undecided and swing voters in three key states are considering. And this law, this crime and punishment issue is just so far down from the economy and coronavirus. Uh, people are much more uh, focused on how the president's handling the pandemic than they are about this idea that there's some there's some riots in, in Portland that are suddenly mm-hmm. going to sweep across the country. 
Uh, yeah, and by the way, those uh, uh, riots or protests or whatever you want to call them, for various reasons, in Portland maybe because of the fires, have kind of calmed down lately, right? Which has taken a little bit of the sting, if you will, out of Trump's argument there. And Nikki, uh, you were with Joe Biden yesterday up in Wilmington. You've been following the Biden campaign particularly. How do you see the state of the race and uh, how the Biden campaign is getting its message out? So I'm actually going to answer the question a little bit differently. I think it's pretty hard for us on the ground to tell the state of the race because of the pandemic. So I would say four years ago, when I was able to travel with Hillary Clinton or with Donald Trump, you could sort of sense the enthusiasm. And I know that, you know, there's always a lot of dispute about, you know, whether like holding big rallies equals, you know, people going to the to the polls. But I think in 2016, we saw that that was true that certainly like the enthusiasm for Trump and also I think for Bernie uh, early on in the Democratic primary sort of showed uh, how strong they were as candidates going forward. But this year is such a challenge because, you know, we're in this bubble with Joe Biden, his audience is of 30 people, and we never really get to see if there's that kind of enthusiasm on the ground. So political reporters, I think in general, are almost over-reliant on the polls, and we don't necessarily know uh, what the electric is going to to look like. I mean, Trump won by such narrow margins in those three states in 2016, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. You would think that, you know, that would be easy enough for someone like Joe Biden to overcome. But you do hear some anecdotal evidence of, you know, some, you know, more Republicans showing up in like Pennsylvania this time around that could potentially, um, you know, flop, keep the state in the blue column for Trump. So, I mean, I do, th- I do agree with, uh, with my colleagues here that I think that the Joe Biden has an edge, but I, I again think that, you know, we're all sort of being extremely over aligned on polling. Uh, and this is going to be an extremely sort of difficult race to sort of figure out because you don't have some of those sort of on the ground anecdotal uh, stories that you can tell because for Joe Biden, there just aren't crowds because he doesn't want them. Right. So, um, I think we also uh, expect and um, know that this campaign uh, is going to get ugly, uglier, um, that uh, Donald Trump particularly will stop at nothing. We saw a little sign of that this week. Uh, with Joe Biden, he went to Miami. Uh, he was introduced at an event by the writer of the number one song in Miami in the Latino community uh, last year. Uh, called the Desparcito, uh, and uh, Joe Biden used that song in his um, in his appearance. Uh, here, first of all, is Joe Biden uh, again, having been introduced by the author of this song. I just have one thing to say. All right. There you go. Dance a little bit, Joe. Come on. All right. There you go. Joe Biden making his point with the most popular song in uh, the Latino community last year. Uh, A Trump supporter took that and and replaced the music with a song by uh, the group NWA called, pardon me, Fuck the Police. And he tweeted this out. I have one thing to say. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. Obviously, a very fake piece of uh, video or audio, and that went out on Twitter. And then Donald Trump retweeted it. Donald Trump himself retweeted it twice. 
um, that was flagged by Twitter as a manipulated piece of uh, audio. So, Niall, this tells us anything goes? Uh, I don't mind a bit of NWA myself on occasion, but no, I mean, that's um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's all part of this uh, situation where I think there's, I mean, to me, this is as much a part of the story of misinformation and the capacity which is increasing all the time of even people at home with no great uh, technological expertise to uh, use technology to create things that didn't happen. And that's a major issue in this election. And it's uh, one that I think has increased in salience in recent years. And now, then there's the separate question of President Trump's willingness to retweet such things. And that is not something that one would expect a sitting president of the United States to retweet. But, you know, we've become accustomed, for good or bad, to President Trump doing these things. I mean, I remember a long time ago him uh, retweeting images of people, you know, getting crushed at wrestling matches with the CNN logo imposed on them and things like that. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the idea that Donald Trump is going to uphold norms of behavior online or offline, I think that ship has sailed quite a long time ago. Yeah. Nikki, what does the Biden campaign do with this constant onslaught of um, attacks by Donald Trump on his person? Or this is not the first time we've seen a piece of video that's been manipulated and called out by Twitter. Does the Biden campaign respond to everyone or just try to stay on message? I think they mostly have been trying to stay on message. It's actually kind of funny that you uh, you 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 bring up that question because it was a question that I wanted to pose to the vice president yesterday. Uh, but as you have also heard, <laughs> he's pretty limited on who he takes questions from, and and so that's been a frustration uh, for covering him as well. Because if you're not CNN or you know CBS and you're not on his little list, you you basically don't get called on unless he decides you know to to sort of be bad and go rogue and and call in a, a couple of additional reporters. Uh, but, you know, they've, they've been sort of trying to avoid, uh, you know, some of these more ludicrous things that Trump has said. I actually wanted to ask Biden yesterday about, you know, Trump daring him to take a drug test before the first debate and whether uh, he would consider doing it because that means that Trump said he would take a drug test as well. I mean, just really ludicrous stuff. But, you know, they've mostly kept on message. I think he's also had a couple really effective uh, speech lines where he sort of combated some of the, the, the more character caricature-ish uh, things that Trump has thrown at him. For example, there was that line where he was like, like, guys, do I really look like a you know radical socialist that, you know, loves uh, rioters? You know, and that was one of the most effective lines, I think, in, in you know, in a, in a speech in which Trump is trying to say that, you know, Biden is, you know, an empty vessel for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. So he's been doing it a little bit mm -hmm. that way. All right. So, Ginger, we know uh, September 29 is the first debate. But before the debate, uh, both Donald Trump and Joe Biden have agreed to a network uh, town hall. Uh, Joe Biden is actually we are speaking in uh, this morning on the 17th of September. His town hall is tonight on CNN. Donald Trump's was a couple of nights ago on ABC, uh, where um, he made it a, 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 uh, an assertion 
about uh, just about everybody is not happy wearing a mask was challenged by George Stephanopoulos. Uh, he was a little, looked like Donald Trump, a little uncertain of his footwork here. But here's that exchange from the town hall with ABC. They said at the Democrat convention, they're going to do a national mandate. They never did it because they've checked out and they didn't do it. And a, qu a good question is you ask, like Joe Biden, they said, we're going to do a ma national mandate on masks. He's called on all governors to have them. It is a state well, responsibility. Well, no, but he, he didn't do it. I mean, he never did it. Now, uh, there is, by the way, a lot of people don't want to wear masks. There are a lot of people think the masks are not good. And there are a lot of people that, as an example, who you have- Who are those people? Well, I'll tell you who those people are. Waiters. All right, Ginger. Waiters. <laughs> Waiters don't want to wear masks. Therefore, we're going to do without masks. <laughs> it's just unbelievable to hear the president say that, especially after we know that the medical and science professionals in his administration are just beating the drum in favor of masks. Um, and it also just seems to be incompatible with like basic thinking that if you're the president of the United States, if you know the response to this virus is going to be what most voters are thinking on election day, um, why would you push against what is seen as a really low uh, effort, at, you know, low energy needed thing to try to combat this, this virus? It just makes almost no sense to me. But I think that what we're seeing the president show again and again and you know, we look at how he was talking to Woodward. We look at how he's talked about the virus from the podium at the White House. It's just this idea that if, that all people need is an image. You know, we heard him um, on Fox, I believe it was on Fox, saying, you know, he, he didn't win the PR of the virus. He combated the virus, but they lost the PR. Um, I think he thinks if he can tell people you don't need to wear a mask anymore, they'll forget that it's there. Um, and I'm not sure how people forget that it's there when people continue to catch it. Um, it is, it is mind-boggling. Right. Uh, for the record, uh, Carol and I went out to dinner last night and uh, our waitress was wearing a mask and she did not complain about wearing a mask. Um, so just... <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's, 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 you, there's lots of people who aren't going to like it on their face. I was working in the Capitol one day. I wear a mask every day. You leave, your face is numb, uh, feeling after eight hours of wearing a mask. It's not delightful. Um, but I know that we're doing it to protect everyone around me and so that I can do my job. Um, and I think that's the key here, right? Like, of course, there are going to be people yeah. who don't like it, but that's that's what we're doing as a as a collective, right? And, and the president sort of misses that. Okay. Uh, now, we've got to take a break, but before we do, uh, I mentioned debate. And uh, Niall, I noticed on the Hill website uh, today, in your memo, um, people have been talking about the debate may be the Last chance Donald Trump has to change the trajectory of this campaign. Uh, you're not so sure, right? What you, what's your thought about it? I'd like to get each of you to comment on what you might expect from this debate. Niall, go first. Well, the, the piece I wrote was partly talking about the fact that incumbent presidents have traditionally had problems in their first debate. Certainly then President Obama was widely seen as underperforming in his first debate against Mitt Romney in 2012. That's not the only example of that. I mean, George W. Bush against John Kerry and go all the way back to Reagan Mondale. And so the point I was really seeking to make was that presidents tend to do badly in that first debate, perhaps because they're not 
accustomed to being challenged, at least by those immediate, uh-huh. immediately around them. And I think that that also showed up in some of the things that we've already been talking about, Bill, such as the ABC Town Hall or, or other more um, uh, credible or confrontational interviews that Trump has done recently, where when he is put under scrutiny or put under pressure, he uh, appears to struggle, like, for example, suggesting that Joe Biden, who is, after all, a private citizen, uh, would be capable of imposing a national mask mandate, an assertion that literally makes no sense. Right. Uh, so, Nikki, do you see the, the debate as a potential game changer? Um, I think that it would be a game changer if Joe Biden did extremely poorly. Um that was sort of always my fear covering him um, early on in the primaries because he did seem, you know, a little, I would say like low energy. I hate using that because it's a Jeb Bush term uh, compared to the Joe Biden that people had seen in, you know, 2008 and 2012. You know, he, he definitely has aged uh, and he would have these small events in like Iowa, New Hampshire. And you're like, well, I mean, is this guy going to be capable of winning the white house? But then we did see some pretty good debates out of Biden later on. I think, you know, the Las Vegas debate, he had a pretty good performance. So I think, you know, if, if people see Biden as, you know, not doing so great, that could potentially change the calculus for Trump. Um, and then of course, like Trump has actually built this build the debate as, you know, him crushing Biden. If you look at like what his campaign is is throwing out there to his supporters, like it's like, hey, come watch me, you know, squash Biden like a fly. So if, if he underperforms, obviously that's not good for him either. But I actually think that it, there's more riding on Biden, much like at the DNC, whenever he gave a, a you know, a pretty great speech, I think that most people would say, you know, it really, it really, you know, I think kind of freaked out Trump for one. Uh, but also, I think, you know, Democrats all sort of breathe a collective sigh of relief. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ginger, I read this morning that, uh, that someone at the White House, one of the spokespeople there said, uh, in terms of preparation for the debate, Donald Trump is doing his job as president, period. No special preparation for the debate. Uh, so what can we expect? Well, uh, I think that that we have to take some of that with a grain of salt because Donald Trump doesn't like to think, doesn't like people to think he needs to be prepped, right? He is the all-knowing, all-doing, all-capable. Um, and so the image uh, of someone preparing him or him practicing does not jive with what he wants the public to see. So I can't imagine an aide uh, would even admit to it if he was. We did see some reporting that that was fascinating about but Trump aides watching places where they thought Biden had stumbled or or things that had made him stumble in the Democratic primary debates to try to provoke a stumble that they think making him look uh, verbally like he has stumbled, which is sort of um, really uh, sort of brass knuckles when you think about it. The man has a stutter and has talked about his stutter. And so uh, almost admitting that you're trying to get him to stutter so that he looks senile um, is really calculating. But I, I think the thing that's important to remember here is that when we watch these debates, we always sort of watch them with the lens of the expectations that we have set, right? We have said that Biden must do really well, otherwise he's going to lose voters. We have said the bar is really low for Trump because people see so much of him. Um, But the voters that haven't made their mind up, the people who actually could be affected, they're not 
listening to our expectations and they're not viewing it through that lens. Um, and so it's really about talking about the things that those people want to hear, which we know is the economy and coronavirus. Um, yeah. And so it's important to remember that's that's what they're going to be looking for. Right. Okay. Um... Niall Standage, Ginger Gibson, Nikki Schwab, uh, great conversation so far. We didn't even get to the man of the hour, Bob Woodward. We'll do that after we take a quick break here on this roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the Iron Workers Union, the great men and women of the Iron Workers Union, over 200,000 strong under the under president of the leadership of President Eric Dean. The iron workers, the sky is their limit, they say. Indeed, it is. Look at some of the most iconic structures in this country, the Golden Gate Bridge, the St. Louis Arch, the Sears Tower, the New World Trade Center building, all topped off, all built by the Iron Workers Union. We salute them and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at ironworkers.org. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on today's roundtable with uh, Nikki Schwab from the Daily Mail, Ginger Gibson from NBC News, and Niall Standage from The Hill. Yes, there continued fallout from the Bob Woodward book, uh, Rage, which came out actually for sale uh, just Tuesday, September 15. Of course, hit the media with 60 Minutes and NBC News and CNN and MSNBC and almost everybody else last week. Uh, Rage containing a lot of uh, explosive comments by Donald Trump after 19 hour, 19 different interviews that uh, the president gave Bob Woodward. Explosive stuff on 
COVID-19, on Donald Trump's comments about the military, his comments about the Black Lives Matter movement. Will it have any impact on the 2020 election at all, this one book? Niall Stanage, what do you think? Maybe is my not very satisfactory answer. <laughs> um, I, I think there are there are two ways of looking at this. One is there have been so many controversies and so many things said by Trump that many voters have found abhorrent, and yet it hasn't really affected his baseline approval rating in a huge way. Against that, I do think that the coronavirus is right now the dominant issue in this election. This has been a very weird year. Normally, it would be all about the economy. Of course, the economy is linked to the coronavirus, but the coronavirus is such a freakish one-off event and has touched everyone's life that I think that is the dominant issue. Mm. Given all of that, to have the President of the United States essentially exposed as knowing that that threat was much more serious than he was acknowledging, that seems to me a politically serious vulnerability for Trump. And in that respect, it could maybe shift some of those small number of voters who are still undecided or still in the ideological center ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Nikki, that was a, a stunning uh, admission by Donald Trump. I downplayed it, he said, and I uh, deliberately downplayed it, and I still like downplaying it. In the ABC town hall meeting, he said, actually, he upplayed it, so take your pick. Um, but to know how serious it is and, and not tell the American people, Nikki, does that, uh, do you think, hurt Donald Trump? I do, I do think it definitely hurts Donald Trump. Um, I actually thought that uh, besides that clip, I thought one of the most sort of memorable uh, clips that came out of it was what Woodward debuted on on the Late Show with Colbert, where you have Trump sort of joking about someone sneezing in the Oval Office, and you can visualize everybody like running out of the Oval Office because someone sneezed. And what was so remarkable about that that quote and that moment was it happened the same day that several hours later. Donald Trump gets to the podium at the White House and basically says, you know, everyone needs to reopen. And he he has the absolute authority to have all of these states reopen their economies. And so I think, you know, that anecdote in a way is almost more, uh, I, I would say, just you know, it's sort of seared into my brain. Uh, and I think if, you know, that anecdote gets out there, I think that that would, would have some, um, you know, might, might, might move some voters. I would also just like to add that I think some of the stuff about um, the military uh, sort of, you know, piggybacks on the, the Atlantic's reporting, obviously, about, you know, those comments that Trump said about suckers and losers. There was a quote that, uh, that Trump uh, supposedly said uh, in front of General Mass- Mattis, where he called his generals uh, he used the F word and then he called them a bunch of, quote, pussies. I mean, that kind of stuff, I think, again, like, you know, continues to potentially damage uh, Trump with the military, but also with Americans who see themselves as very patriotic and very pro-military. So that could, you know, damage him uh, in the next couple of weeks in this election. And so Ginger, Donald Trump said, well, if this was so bad, why didn't Bob Woodward release it in March? Why did he wait until September? 
That is one of the most unusual um, uh, responses to uh, criticism that I've heard. If it was so bad, someone should have criticized me sooner. So I, that's my answer. I mean, I, I think the thing that's that's sort of noteworthy here in, in, in your sort of original question of does any of this matter um, is that it doesn't. Right, that that this has now been out in the ether for a week. That his poll numbers are still bad, but they're not uh, terribly worse. Um, and and to your also earlier question, I mean, he's losing this election, um, and he's he seems to think that this is just he, he does seem to think this is a problem, and that's why we saw him contradict himself in that in that town hall. But um, he's running out of answers, so we're seeing sort of a, a flailing, and and I really think it's important for us to consider a little bit if we've become the frog in the proverbial pot. You know, he's throwing these <laughs> baseless medical attacks at his opponent. You talk about tweeting doctored videos. He tweeted something uh, calling Biden a pedophile, which is just, you know, not true. Uh, we can say is not true. Uh, we were saying for the past couple of years, this is going to be nasty. It's going to be terrible. Well, we're there. It's nasty and it's terrible. Um, and it's not working. Uh, he's He's been that way for a little while. And, and it's not sticking. And finally, as journalists, uh, we love to talk about nothing better than ourselves and then the media. So I'd like to ask each of you to comment on um, to Bob Woodward uh, for the very first time. And this is his 20th book um, about American presidents, starting with Richard Nixon and all the way up to Donald Trump, his second book on Donald Trump. Uh, and I have a copy of it right here in my hand. The very last page page 392, the very last line of the Woodward book, he says, when his performance as president is taken in its entirety, I can only reach one conclusion. Trump is the wrong man for the job. Bob Woodward taking off his journalist hat and speaking as an American citizen. Did he do the right thing, Niall? Uh, I think those questions are very difficult to answer. I mean, Bob Woodward has uh, a sterling reputation in part because he has, broadly speaking, followed the traditional journalistic model of being um, impartial or presenting himself as impartial. You know, whether Bob Woodward likes Trump or not, I think is a, a political irrelevance with all due respect to Mr. Woodward. Um, did he do the right thing? If he feels compelled to say that, that's that's okay. I do think that there is a, a general and ongoing gravitational pull of, of for media figures to express their own opinions. Uh, I'm ambivalent about that. I see certain good things about that and certain bad things about it. So I've mixed feelings. What do you think, Ginger? Cross the line? I think that Bob Woodward has to decide what he wants to do. I think that we are seeing, um, you know, a, a unique situation. We're seeing Bob Woodward, who um, has written these books, who has seen the inside, who has had 18 bone conversations with the president. Um, he felt the need to do that. Um, I, we are in a unique moment, and I, and I don't think that we should take Bob Woodward's decision to do that in a book um, as indicative of how the rest of the press should be um, acting or behaving or talking about the election. Um, I think there's still a duty lots of us have um, to do our job impartially and without letting our opinions be known or influencing what we're doing. Um, and I might argue that Bob Woodward um, 
knowing that he held this opinion, was doing something to disclose to his readers that he felt it um, in an effort to make it more transparent. And and there's something to be said for the power of that, that, that he's saying, look, not only did I have these conversations and present you these facts, but look, this is this is what I'm thinking as well. Um, and so, not 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 for the rest of us to follow, but I think uh, a choice that he was allowed to make. Right. Uh, and Nikki, uh, what do you think? Did he go too far or do the right thing? I, I would have preferred that he he didn't, and the readers could have drawn their own conclusion. And I think that there was obviously plenty of material in there for them to potentially draw that conclusion. I only say this because it's been really, really hard to get, I would say, people that uh, are inclined to support Trump to trust our reporting. And it's you know it's been this way for you know four or five years now, where you know you're like this is a fact, and they're like no, that's not a fact. And so, you know, again, it, it just sort of is more ammunition uh, against all of us for us to be considered to be fake news, liberals in the tank, you know, for the other guy. When I think, you know, we really do try very, very, very hard uh, to, to 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 look at the whole story and to try to, you know, uh, I hate using this word, but like stay fair and balanced, even though I know it's a Fox News term um, and, and to do our job. <laughs> Yeah, they're unbalanced. But, but you know, we, we really strive to do this. And, you know, and, and voters really, you know, when I'm in crowds with Trump voters, you know, they're sort of leering at us and giving us the middle finger, you know, and it's like, it's like, guys, like, I'm I'm just trying to give you the facts. And and so, you know, with Woodward now, quote, quote in the tank for the liberals, you know, it, it doesn't make our job any easier. Okay, what a week it was, and what a great conversation about the week that was. Before we let you go, there must have been some story this week that caught your attention, made you stop for a second and say, hmm, this is something to think a little bit more about. We call it your favorite story of the week. Uh, how about it, Ginger? What caught your, uh, what stopped you in your tracks? One of my coworkers, Lauren Egan, had a great story. She went to Minnesota uh, and went to the northern part of the state known as the Iron Range. And it's a place where Trump is really betting he can he can utilize his support there to flip Minnesota, where he still continues to trail in the polls. And, and it sort of goes at something Nikki said, you know, we earlier, we as an industry, because of the pandemic, are struggling to get on the ground and talk to voters. And it's such an important job that we have to be able to communicate to everyone um, what is happening, what voters are saying, that when we get, we're starting again to get some of that on the ground, it really provides insight. Um, And so there is this uh, population of people that are just really fired up, that are really ready for Trump and that are out working the ground for him. Um, They may not be enough, but uh, if he wins, it's going to be places like Minnesota's iron range that are going to make the difference. And so a really great look at what's going on there and that um, they're still fired up, even though things like his steel tariffs and his trade regulations that were meant to help them didn't bring back the jobs uh, that, that he had hoped for. Right. Stories like that are important for those of us who live in the bubble, right, <laughs> uh, to get a look at uh, the real life uh, around the country. Uh, Nikki Schwab from the Daily Mail, what caught your attention? So the New York Times this week had this like pretty delightful profile about uh, Kanye West attempting to run for president uh, that had some pretty, yeah. pretty great details, including how they've sort of first obtained this interview with Kanye in which he sort of tweeted out that he would like 
talk about his uh, his meeting with Jared Kushner in the next like 30 minutes to the New York Times. And so uh, this reporter gets on with Kanye on a Zoom call and Kanye like wants uh, an editor to be present during the Zoom call. And the reporter's like, that's not going to happen. And then Kanye's like, uh, I'm Kanye. Who are you? I'm the head of everything. And he, he continues to sort of confound everybody because, you know, I sort of joked in my own writing up of the New York Times profile, you know, they sent two Pulitzer Prize winners to try to figure out why Kanye's running for president. And we still really have no idea why this is happening. Obviously, there's been some great reporting done by uh, our friends over at Vice and New York Magazine that Republican operatives have been involved and, in, you know, trying to get him on the ballot in various states. Uh, and then obviously the, you know, the Kushner meeting certainly raises suspicions. But, you know, on a more serious note, he is potentially going to be on the ballot in some kind of swingy states, uh, including like Colorado. And so, you know, he, he could have indeed a spoiler effect if people uh, vote for him. So it's sort of something to, you know, sort of keep an eye out on. But I, I would say, you know, definitely go read this profile. It's so funny. Uh, one of my favorite little nuggets in it is that he, he tweeted his campaign poster, which for some reason has a photo of actress Kirsten Dunst on it. And she responded on Twitter, uh, what's the message here and why am I a part of it? And so I think all of us uh, have that same question about this entire uh, sort of rogue 2020 uh, bid for president by Kanye West. Yeah. Uh, the tragedy is, of course, that he will not be on stage for the September 29 debate. Uh, that would be uh, <laughs> that would be worth the price of admission if he were I on think stage. Twenty twenty needs with that. Donald Trump. <laughs> so, Niall Stan is your favorite story, my friend. My favorite story came out uh, this morning as we're having this conversation on Thursday morning, which is con confirmation that uh, former President Barack Obama's new memoir is on its way. It will be published in uh, November, shortly after the election uh, by Penguin Random House. And according to the New York Times report on that uh, happening. The uh, book will be the first of two volumes and will uh, in, include Obama's early political life and his first election campaign, but will uh, end at the death of Osama bin Laden in uh, 2011. So on one hand, I, I think uh, many, many people will be looking forward to that book. Uh, President Obama is genuinely a talented writer, as people who have read Dreams from My Father in particular will know that would be a, a great book, even if he uh, wasn't who he is, so to speak. The other detail in the New York Times report on the memoir that I did uh, smile about was that the demand for this book is expected to be enormous. The first print run is going to be 3 million copies, apparently. Mm. And I'm um, quoting here from the Times story by Elizabeth Harris, which is that... Uh, she writes, to accommodate such an enormous order, Crown plans, plans to print about one million of those books in Germany and has arranged for three ship, ships outfitted with 112 shipping containers to bring those copies to the United States, which A, is a fascinating detail in and of itself, and B, if the book comes out in November, regardless of the election result, Donald Trump will still be president. So I have all sorts of visions of weird customs <laughs> barriers being erected to the Obama book ships, but we shall see what happens when it actually uh, takes place. Uh, and the question in 
in the uh, former first family, of course, is who sells more books, Michelle or Barack Obama? Uh, and I think Barack's going to have uh, an uphill fight to sell more than uh, uh, than Michelle did, or, or to stay on the New York Times bestseller list as long as she has with with her book uh, Becoming. So my favorite story of the week, you know, I'm sort of an outer space freak. Um, I love NASA, love space exploration, exploration, always have all of my life. And I've always felt certain that there is life on Mars. Uh, well, now we know, no, we're, we've been talking about the wrong planet. You probably all saw the story this week. Uh, there's not life on Mars, but there could be on Venus of all places. A Venus where the surface temperature is 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Carl Sagan called this the planet most like hell in the entire universe. But chem uh, scientists have discovered, astrophysicists have discovered that there is a chemical called phosphine in the clouds surrounding Venus, and that could only come from something alive that is producing uh, this substance, this chemical. And so now suddenly uh, scientists are all shifting their focus uh, from Mars or other planets to the planet Venus. And we may see some exploration there someday, although you've got to say with temperatures at 800 degrees Fahrenheit, <laughs> it's going to be a hot time in the old town tonight for sure when that, whenever they get there. Uh, that kind of wraps it up for us here on today's Roundtable. Ginger Gibson, thank you so much for joining us uh, from NBC News Digital. Niall, thank you for taking time out from the Hill to join us as well. Nikki Schwab, The Daily Mail, always good to have all three of you with us. Thank you so much for your insights today. And thanks to all of the rest of you for listening. We always ask you and remind you, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod by wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just pull up the Bill Press Pod and click on subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. Uh, also, for a lot of fun, follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. That's it for today. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay strong, stay sane in these days of COVID-19. See you next time. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 